Okay? According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 10 this morning, uh, where we've wrapped up um, the inclusio uh, from verses 6 through 11, and we moved on to verse 12, and I think we'll see verses 13 and 14 today, try to gain some ground. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside distractions and to bless our study in the truth of his word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this blessing that we have. I thank you for our midweek in, in so many ways, Father. Wednesday is is like an oasis in the wilderness. It's a uh, it's a refuge, it's a blessing to be able to come together morning and evening, Father, and study Proverbs and study Galatians and pray together in our prayer meetings and everything that you provide, Father. We just give you the praise and the glory for being faithful. We call upon your faithfulness to set aside distractions, to hedge us about, to hinder anyone that would want to come in here and bring us to harm or stop what we're doing. Father, allow the word of God to go forth and bless your children on this day. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. I want to prove to you that I fixed my uh, my typo, <laughs> so we'll do that, and then we'll uh, move on from there. I forget which uh, slide we're looking at. We're probably looking at that one. I finally took the N off of inclusio, and I wanted you to see that before I move on to the next slide. But a six-verse, 12-line inclusio paints the present and future contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And that was the material in verses 6 through 11, where you have in verse 6, the mouth of the wicked conceals violence, and verse 11, the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And so the repetition of that expression forms the boundaries of the what's called an inclusio, all right? It's a, it's a facet of literature, it's a facet of poetry. Uh, not everyone agrees on uh, every inclusio. In fact, there's another one coming up in in uh, verses 12 through uh, 16 that I struggle to see, and uh, or 12 through 18, I guess. And uh, not everyone agrees on some of these, whether they are legitimate or not. It's it's like uh, other facets of literature that I think sometimes they find more in there than really exist, but they want to justify the writing of another commentary on Proverbs, so they find something new to throw in there. And uh, sometimes I think some of their arguments are weak or are perhaps a uh, a bit of a stretch. Anyway, we uh, have some subpoints of that. I'm going to skip through. Get down to verse 12. And this was point nine in the outline. Proverbs 10, 12 follows the conceals violence inclusio with a beautiful concealment message, a covering slash concealment message that is always done in love. And this is a sanctified concealment. And it's not a concealment that's making excuses for sin, and it's not a concealment that's uh, becoming a, a conspirator in the in the process, but it is in grace, not bringing something up. It is the love of God and the grace of God that says, I'm not going to spread that around as far and wide as other people would, all right? And uh, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all 
transgressions. We have a principle here that we're familiar with because it gets brought into the New Testament. Peter liked it and quoted it in uh, 1 Peter 4, 8, and it's mentioned in James, James 5, 20. Uh, I think uh, the concept is is uh, brought up there in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, the fact that love does not keep a list of wrongs. That's uh, it's not something that love does. And so if you keep a list of wrongs, if you keep a catalog of, uh, of, of evidence or, or ammunition that you can use against a person, uh, why are you doing that? Because love doesn't do that. And uh, we see it here. Love covers transgressions. We're not going to bring it up. We're just going to let that go. And, and part of the blessings of forgiveness is we get to leave matters in the, in the justice of God. We say that's between you and the Lord. You know, Jesus Christ dealt with that at Calvary. I'm going to let the Father and the Son deal with that. I'm not going to allow for whatever the issue is we're dealing with here, I'm not going to let that uh, be a root of bitterness that springs up and defiles. You understand? And so uh, we have this here. And so it's mentioned in Proverbs 10.12. It comes back again in Proverbs 17.9. We looked at these last week. Um, He who conceals a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Why does it have to come up again and again and again and again and again? Does this thing ever die? <laughs> you know, does there come a point when we say, that's enough? We're not going to mention that again. And as I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. The, the definition of love here in 1 Corinthians, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I thought we covered it sufficiently last week, but this definition here in 1 Corinthians 13, read it. Read it once a month. Read it every so often. Read it with such a frequency that you don't lose sight of it because uh, we've got flawed definitions of love that are, that are saturating our culture and that are infesting our churches. And I think that there are churches that are no longer standing for the truth because there are churches that have redefined what they want to call love and uh, rejecting God's definition of what agape is and what agape does. So agape is patient. Agape is kind. Agape is not jealous. Agape does not brag. Agape is not arrogant. And I think a lot of things that that pose as love in our twisted upside-down culture are very arrogant. And they're arrogant in the things that they tolerate. And they're arrogant in the things that they celebrate. And they're arrogant in the ways that they call you a hater as they defend their own definition of love. And I just see arrogance seething in the, in the attitudes that are, that are so hostile to our defense of the truth. Agape does not act unbecomingly. Well, what does that mean? What would it mean to act unbecomingly? Man, you could teach a whole conference right there and, and this generation wouldn't have a clue. Even when the conference was over, this generation would ha- wouldn't have a clue. What does it mean to act unbecomingly or becomingly? Or what do you mean appropriate behavior? Who are you to judge my behavior? See? And, and then again, you become a hater if you tell them that, that their behavior is unbecoming. Okay? It does not seek its own. <laughs> okay? And there you go. Uh, it's all about what I want and what's good for me, what I like, and, and it's all about self. And if it makes me happy, well, then who are you to tell me I'm wrong? No, agape does not seek its own. Agape is always seeking for the, for the benefit of the other. Jesus wasn't thinking of himself when he was on the cross. He was thinking about you and me, right? Love does not seek its own. Agape does not seek its own. Agape is not provoked. 
You know, then you start to wonder, well, why are you so touchy? Why does this bug you so much? Why, why do you, you know, why is this, if agape is not provoked, then maybe this thing you're calling love isn't love. Agape does not take into account a wrong suffer. That's the expression. I think that's a great parallel with, uh, with Proverbs 10, 12. We're not, uh, not going to hold it against you. We're not going to bring it up again. Agape does not rejoice in unrighteousness. And so if it, if it, all these things that they're calling love that are, that what scripture calls are unrighteous, how do you rejoice in that? You can't because agape doesn't. But rejoices with the truth. So you have the standard of righteousness and you have the standard of truth. And if the, if what you're looking at does not conform to God's righteousness or God's truth, then it's not love. Not by this definition right here. So don't call it, call it love, okay? And love is love is just an emotional thing that's designed to uh, misdirect the issue. All right. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape never fails. Now, um, this verse, let me get back now. There are some who believe that verse 12 actually opens an even longer inclusio than the one we just finished. And I'm not yet sold, okay? I'm going to keep studying it, I'm going to keep digging, I'm going to keep chewing on it. Um, I have a, a natural um, difficulty in the fact that I'm not, I'm not retarded or I'm not dyslexic, but I am uh, anti-poetic, <laughs> okay? I am the least poetic male you've ever encountered in your life. Um, and so I work extra hard to try to understand poetry as I'm studying it, and uh, including different things. And, and I get the inclusio from 6 through 11. That one was easy to spot. The problem is in 12 through 18 is that we actually have some text issues. There's some text criticism questions. And in fact, verse 18 is the, is the roughest verse of them all, whereby I think the Septuagint reading is probably pr- preferable to the Masoretic Hebrew. I think the ha- Masoretic Hebrew is corrupt. And, uh, and, and the Septuagint reading is is preferable. And so uh, we're going to have to do some work on he who conceals hatred has lying lips and he who spreads slander is a fool. Uh, that, that verse needs help. And uh, there's some manuscript study that has to go into it and some Hebrew work that has to go into it and some aspects there. But if that is a parallel to verse 12, then it is conceivable that we have an inclusio here in which case we have verse tandems. And I, and I do like the link between 13 and 14, and I do like the link between 15 and 16. Those are great pairs. The 13-14 pair is a great pair. We're going to talk about that pair today. The 15-16 uh, pair is a great pair. We're going to handle that pair uh, probably next week. Uh, and then uh, 17 probably stands on its own. And 18 probably stands on its own unless it's the, the inclusio tandem with, with verse 12. Okay? And then the rest of the chapter um, kind of follows what chapters 11 through 18 all deal with. And, and it's almost the, the shotgun approach to Proverbs, which makes it hard to outline a chapter and impossible to structure a Proverbs study like you stru- structure a First Corinthians study or a Galatians study or anything else I've ever taught. So uh, these notes have been frustrating to try to... Uh, Put together. Anyway, whether it's a, an inclusio or not, I'm, I'm still leaving as a as an open question. 
Let's talk about verses 13 and 14, though, because there is a public benefit or a public harm that is done when personal wisdom is applied or when foolishness is applied. Okay? So point 10, the public benefit or harm is evident in the personal wisdom or lack of its population. Okay? Societal effects of wisdom or lack thereof. Much of what we've studied so far has been on a personal level, on, on an individual basis, you know, on a, on a personal be- level. If I'm wise, I will personally benefit. If I'm foolish, I will personally suffer. Now what happens, take that personal application and multiply it. Make it normative for a culture. Because if you get too many fools in, in proximity, what do you got? Okay, Austin, all right? If you have... To, if you have a concentration of wise people, what do you got? Okay? And this is what we deal with. And, and this is um, going to be repeated, I think, repeat, uh, several times between here and chapter 24. It's why I've given the heading for this personal and public wisdom. I think that it becomes characteristic of this section from chapter 10 to chapter 24 is, is showing how the personal becomes public and the effects that it has on a culture, on a society, on a village, on a community, on a tribe, on a nation. Okay, So on the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who has understanding. Wise men store up knowledge. Notice the plurality there. But with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. And we seem to have a context here that stretches beyond just the personal impact to the cultural impact. Because who's, who's wielding that rod? Who's wielding that rod? He's not, he's not disciplining himself. All right, Somebody else is administering that rod. And this is what we talk about when we talk about civil government. And what's the role of government? Does it bear the rod for nothing? Does it bear the sword for nothing? When does it choose to use a rod instead of a sword? When does it choose to, you know, when is a sword necessary instead of a rod? They're both implements of, the, uh, of, of civil justice. As, as God has structured it under the laws of divine establishment. So again, on the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found. And it's going to benefit when, he's, when, when those lips are, are, are flapping. Okay, When the wise person is expressing wisdom, who benefits? Is he talking to himself? Or is he having a benefit in his family, in his neighborhood, in his community, in his nation? All right? But when the fool is flapping his, his lips, look out, okay? And um, likewise, the, store, the storehouse. Is he, is he dispensing information or is he receiving information? Is it bidirectional? Is it both ways? That not only does he, is he contributing, but he's also accumulating, okay? There's, there's a benefit here. We're going to talk about that as well, a storehouse of knowledge. But with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. Who, who's your go-to guy when you need wisdom? And who is the last go-to guy you would ever go to, right? I wouldn't go to this person if they were the last person on earth, kind of thing. Which is a kind way of saying they're the biggest fool I know, right? Who, who, who's, the first, who's your go-to guy and who's your don't-go-there, okay? And, and, and 
that's what Proverbs is dealing with. So there's a public benefit. There's also a public harm. And it's evident in the personal wisdom or lack thereof of its population. We're going to see this here now in the, in the subpoints. Starting with the wise man. The wise man provides a public benefit in the wisdom they dispense and the knowledge they retain. The wisdom they dispense and the knowledge they retain. They themselves become the fountain that they're storing, that they're dispensing, but also the storehouse that they retain. We see the lips in verse 13 and we see the storehouse in verse 14. The wise man provides a public benefit in the wisdom they dispense and the knowledge they retain. And and sometimes, you know, how long does it take before this disappears from a culture? It can be done in one generation. One generation and it's gone. See, how long does it take? And, uh, you know, when, when grandmothers are trying to teach sewing and canning and all these skills and all this storehouse of wisdom, but the, uh, the, the daughters and the granddaughters have no interest in it whatsoever. That uh, they, they view all of that as just old-fashioned and domestic and primitive and sexist and wrong and, and useless and waste of time and whatever. And, and you've got grandmothers that are just would love nothing more than to, to share their skills and their sewing. And, and really the, the, the biggest thing is the wisdom of, of Scripture and the fellowship of, of passing on a, a heritage from the Word of God. Okay? And the daughters and the granddaughters have no time for that because they're pursuing whatever this cosmos tells them to pursue. And so the public benefit is then lost. I think there's uh, some neat principles here and some things that, I jump, that jump out at me anyway as far as where can it be found. But the finding of wisdom, the obtaining of wisdom, where do you go to get it? Who has it? And uh, we've had it twice already. Proverbs 3.13, Proverbs 8.17. Remember these? Proverbs 3.13, if you're with us in this study. Um, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Well, where do you get it? Does it come on trees? Do you pluck it off the apple tree? Where where, where do you find it? Do you dig it out of the ground? How deep do you got to dig to find wisdom? For her profit is better than the profit of silver. Her gain is better than fine gold. Profit and gain are not bad words. <laughs> okay, Profit and gain are biblical words. They are positive words. We are designed, we are in God's image, commanded to be profitable, commanded to be productive, commanded to increase, to be fruitful, and to multiply. Okay? All right, so where do you find wisdom? Proverbs 8 and verse 17. I didn't versify this screen. I kind of enjoyed that on Sunday when I, it it took half the day to do it, but to put hyperlinks on those verses, right, where I can just tap the thing and it sends you over. That was kind of fun on Sunday doing that, but man, it, it takes time. It's tedious. Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. You know, it's not, it's not a great mystery as how to obtain the wisdom of God, but it does take work. It takes effort. You've got to be diligent. What does it say? Be diligent, present yourself approved before God's face, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, that's, that's far more work than most people are willing to put in. It's easier to be religious. 
it's easier to not, you know, you don't have to think. You just show up, you listen, you do what you're told, you pay some money, you feel better about yourself. Easy. Religion is easy. Biblical Christianity takes work. And so um, it's diligence. I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring wealth and righteousness. Enduring wealth. The wealth of this world passes away. The wealth of this world diminishes. The wealth of this world, I tell you, currency devaluates. Uh, wages are down from where they were eight years ago. What are we going to do, right? Enduring wealth. How about eternally enduring? My fruit is better than gold, even better than pure gold. My yield is better than choice of silver. When do our investments mature? When is the, when is the yield realized? When is it that I can observe the yield without penalty? Well, in terms of God's wisdom, all day, every day. I can profit all day, every day in God's wisdom, but then it's going to abide for eternity. There's no penalties for early withdrawal. I can tap into God's wisdom today, and it does not diminish my eternal uh, stockpile ever. See? And then 10.13. You know, it's interesting, when we looked at Job 28, you remember this? In Job 28 we have a description about where wisdom can be found. And he uses mining as his imagery, which I find extraordinary. It goes well with my own thought process. I call my study the mine. When uh, at the house, I go into the mine every morning. Greek word for which, by the way, is Metallica. All right. I won't tell you what my theme song is. But in the, when I go into the mine, okay, what's the point of going into the mine? You're digging it up. You're digging it up. And the deeper you dig, you know, the more you can obtain, and then you're, you're spreading it out. I get to give it away for free when I come in here. How fun is that? So Job, in Job 28, he says in verse 12, Where can wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. You know, it is something beyond the realm of humanity. The wisdom of God is beyond mortality. It is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. The sea says it is not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. What, what, what is it in life that you can't put a dollar sign on? You can't, you can't assign a value to it, right? It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and the precious onyx or sapphire, Gold or glass cannot equal it. You know, glass used to be a precious commodity. Back before, when glass was difficult to make, in, in, in uh, you read about the Middle Ages, read about um, the, the Venetian uh, uh, city-states and all the trading that took place, glass was high-dollar item. And then they uh, changed processes for how to produce it. You could mass produce it, you can make, and as soon as anyone could make it and you could put it out in bulk, well, Supply and demand. Now everybody's got it. Now it's worthless. Now you just smash it and who cares? Make another one. Okay? Anyway. But here glass is spoken of as high value. And I think that's interesting too. And that's anything earthly, even gold, we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Why does Scripture call silver and gold perishable? We call them precious metals. But the Scripture says we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from our futile way of life, but with the precious blood, the blood of Christ. 
Okay? And this, is, this comes down to the, the biblical definition of, of scarcity. Scarcity drives price. Scarcity drives value. Scarcity drives uh, exchange. And if there's one and only one, like there's only one and only one mediator between God and man, and his spiritual life, his death that he was willing to suffer on our behalf, there is nothing else like it in all of existence. Okay? Therefore, it, it exceeds any other price that could be paid. Nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Verse 18, coral and crystal are not to be mentioned. And the acquisition of a wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. And as you read this and you think, man, this was, this was in the, the mid-third millennia, B.C., right? This is, this is after the flood, but before Abraham. What a, what a technological culture was this that understood mining and smelting and trade and international trade and all the exchange markets. And I think they probably had um, just a, a, a marvelous free market economy that we couldn't match for a long, long time. Where then does wisdom come from? Where is the place of understanding? It is thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living, concealed from the birds of the sky, abandoned in death, say, with our ears. We've heard a report of it. But God understands its way and he knows its place. What was Job's perspective for Abaddon and death in the angelic conflict? He certainly endured a lot of it. Did he understand what it was about? Anyway, where can wisdom be found? The acquisition of it. What a benefit. Now, is there a benefit to a culture when um, productive people produce things? Okay, yeah. There's benefit when productive people produce things. There's benefit when, when value is increased. There's benefit when, 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 pe- when people manufacture more than they need and they can trade the surplus, okay? And they can, they can specialize and they can trade and, and all of these things. It's beneficial to everybody. But the most beneficial of all is what? It's the Word of God. It's doctrine. That's right. When a culture has the freedom for Christians to be in the Word of God, to be studying the truth, to be preaching, to be writing, to be uh, passing on a legacy to, the, to, to future generations, okay? Ultimately, that's the best benefit of all. Even if you glance down, glance down to chapter 29. Now, we could continue to read in the entire context because there is no break of context from the verses I just finished down to 29, verses 21 and 22. Um, it's again, Job took up his discourse and said it's a continuation of what he had been saying in, in chapter 28, and he continues it in chapter 29. He's talking about the good old days, right? Oh, that I were as in the months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me. And this is what we do in the turmoil of our soul as we, we lament the good old days. Man, if only we could turn back the clock and go back to whenever right? If only we could go back to whenever. You know, you tell your, you know, wouldn't it be great if, if I, I miss the, 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 the six-year-old little girl that used to sit on my lap. You know, well, she's about to be 16, all right? And, uh, you know, things are different. All right. As I was in the prime of my days and all these things, and he seems like he is never, he's never going to see those days again. 
He's not the friend of God anymore. God's not with him anymore. And he has all these laments. And when you get down to verses 21 and 22, I think, well, even before that, there's useful things to see here. What is his position in the, in the community? Verse 7, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, you know, are you, are you known in your community? Do you have a voice in your neighborhood uh, association, in your uh, precinct meetings, in your city government? The young men saw me and hid themselves. <laughs> Ooh, look who's here. Somebody important's here. I'm going to go somewhere else. And the old man arose and stood. That's, that's in respect. Uh, the princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths. You know, when E.F. Hutton speaks. Remember those old commercials? All right. Um, the voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to their palate. When uh, the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw it, gave witness of me, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. And it's more than just a rich guy that spread his money around. More than just a kind guy with a lot of charity. He was righteous. He had wisdom. And remember, those that survived the flood are still living. This is within, I think, eight generations of, of, uh, of the flood. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. You know, you start thinking, uh, all right, this is, this is how it's going to finish. Didn't, didn't expect he was going to face chapters 1 and 2. Never dreamed that he was going to face chapters 1 and 2. My root is spread out to the waters and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new within me. My bow is renewed in my hand. To me they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. After my words they did not speak again. And my speech dropped on them. I mean, what else is there, is there to say? It's like James giving the closing argument in Acts 15. You know, Peter can speak and whoever else can speak, but when James speaks, that's it. Okay, it's the final word. When Job speaks, that's it. It's the final word. They waited for me as for the rain and opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they did not believe. That's an encouragement ministry right there. Do you have a gift for encouragement? What if they don't see any hope and you get to be their smile? You get to be the word of encouragement. The light of my face they did not cast down. I chose a way for them and sat as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops as one who comforted the mourners. Anyway, it's an interesting passage. And I think it shows, again, part of wisdom literature, it shows what we're talking about in, in Proverbs chapter 10. The lips of the wise. What is the benefit we have to our neighborhood? The benefit we have to our uh, precinct, county precinct, or our city, or our state, or our nation? Are we able to, to communicate wisdom? Are we able to 
expose the, the stupidity of the foolishness of Satanism for what it is. And say that is contrary to the word of God. This is the word of God. This is right and wrong. This is what you're promoting is insanity. What, what the Bible offers is truth and stability. Are we going to stand for truth? Or do we just silently keep our mouth shut and go along with some kind of chaos that has, you know, 27 selections for gender on an on a application form or something? Male and female, he created them. Can we return to sanity in, uh, in different ways? All right. And if you want a couple of examples of this, I can't think of anything better than uh, Joseph in uh, Genesis 41 or Daniel and his friends in Daniel chapter 1. You know, we're talking about men of integrity, men with doctrine. All right. And you say, well, just because he's a believer and just because he knows the Bible, what do you think that, why, why, why do you think that's going to make him a better politician or that's going to make him a better uh, worker or a better economist or a better anything? Okay, Can, can't you be, you know, isn't it conceivable that he could be really, really good with a Bible, but just he could be a crummy president or he could be a crummy uh, economist or a crummy whatever, fill in the blank, see? And I think that that attitude has a premise or has a, a fallacy in, in one of the premises that, that, that underlies it, all right, that separates out God's wisdom from temporal life. Separates out spiritual truth from daily life. Proverbs doesn't let us do that. A wise man is a wise man. And to become a man of wisdom, to become a woman of wisdom, to become a woman of excellence or a man of excellence, that effort and that diligence and that work and that transformation, when the Word of God transforms you, it will have an effect in, in this earth, in temporal life, all right? And there's nothing magical or mystical or, 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 you know, you still have to go to medical school if you want to be a doctor. You still have to go to, to you know, get the, get the secular training for that field. But in addition to that, your Bible training transforms you into something that those secular folks just can't compete with. They cannot compete with. The reason why is because they're poisoned. Conformity to this age poisons their thinking. And they start to believe things that just are not true. And when you believe things that are not true, you're clearly at a disadvantage. <laughs> All right? You start to embrace things and you start to, yeah, I mean, you just, you're, you're willing to fight for, for lies. And there's no foundation in reality there. All right, so in uh, Genesis 41, and I'll tell you, Joseph is one of my favorite characters in the whole Bible. And you look at the training that he had in his youth, and the hatred, the jealousy on the part of his brothers, and all the abuse that he put up with, and everything that he suffered. And it seemed like every time he did exactly the right thing, the next step was even worse. You know? And yet he keeps serving the Lord, he keeps doing the, the right thing, he keeps staying faithful. And he's living the Word of God even when he doesn't have to. You know, who's going to know? His dad's not going to know, his mom's not going to know. He's, he's a slave 
in a foreign country. I mean, would it really have been that bad if he would have slept with, with uh, what's her name? Potiphar's wife, right? Well, to him, yes. And to God, yes. To the Lord, yes. He was being trained and equipped and prepared. And if he was not that man of integrity, he would have not been ready to, to feed the world in the seven years of famine. He has to be a man of unquenchable, uh, unquestionable character and integrity. That's what equipped him for the work that was in front of him. I think, too, if he would have bailed on his Christian walk, if he would have become a compromiser and become a, you know, then what would, where would his heart have been when he encountered his brothers? When they show up to buy some food, oh, look out. You know what a carnal-minded Joseph could have done to them? How ugly would that have been? See, So, you know, I think in, in our humanity, we, we minimize sin and we act like, oh, it's no big deal. Or, well, I can just confess it. No. The damage that we do is, is, is lengthy. And the consequences, sometimes we don't even know the, the half of, of what the consequences end up being. So, um, I mean, without reading the whole chapter, goodness. Um, picking up in, in verse 33 here. This is his recommendation. Joseph tells Pharaoh, he says, Let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise. And it may not be the man you, you, you consider, okay? Discerning and wise. Let him set over the land of Egypt. Uh, let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land. Let, let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. So for every one of these seven years, a fifth is going to be stored away. Then let him gather all the food of, the good, of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority. Let them guard it. So he's got a plan, but that plan has to be executed by men of integrity, men of wisdom, appointed people that can be trusted. They're going to be faithful to get this plan executed. And then let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not perish during the famine. The benefit is not to the, to the people doing this, it's for the population. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. And then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? Pharaoh says, I don't think there's anybody else on all of Egypt that has his character, has his integrity, has his ability. See, and you know, character matters. It used to. Our, our culture says it doesn't. And well, you know, what he does in his personal life, who cares? Is if he can do the job, you know, back when Bill Clinton was impeached. Well, yeah, but that's just his sex life. That's just his personal life. He's still a good president. Well, wait a minute. Integrity is integrity. Character is character. And, and, and if you're not faithful in your marriage, what are you, I mean... There used to be a veto in the business world. The, 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 the board wouldn't put up with a CEO that was, that was a cheater. See, you want a man of integrity. Who, you know, First uh, Peter, First uh, Timothy chapter 3, for pastors, for elders and overseers, what's the emphasis? Character. What's the emphasis here? Character. All throughout the scripture, character. If you're going to appoint deacons, Deaconesses, it's character. And so um, 
Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this and there is no one so discerning and wise as you are, you shall be over my house and according to your command all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And and, uh, you know, you think about the humility that it takes to not let this go to your head. And uh, that's what all the that's what the well was about, and the abuse by the brothers in the jail for two years, and Potiphar's wife, and every other mistreatment was preparing him for this moment. Anyway, um, it goes down to verse fifty-seven. Um, I mean, you look at all this, and it could go to your head. Put him in garments of fine linen and put a gold necklace around his neck. Had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. He set him over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said, although I'm Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And gives him a new name here, Zaphanath Paniah. And he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, as his wife. Now he's connected he is now high power in the in the land of Egypt. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Anyway, this uh, I like what it says, verse 49, he stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring, for it was beyond measure. Beyond measure. What a blessing. Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, and his three friends. Daniel chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. And you'll notice, um, even before verse 17, when they're first selected in verse 4, uh, these youths were um, good-looking, that's important in politics, <laughs> showing ev- intelligence in every branch of wisdom, in, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. All the tools necessary for politics. He ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of Chaldeans. And they're Hebrews. They're, they're slaves. They're carried away. And they're taken to this land and they're forced, they're, they're put into a school. How would you do if you were kidnapped and hauled off to another country and shoved into a school with the uh, not speaking the language of that country? It'd be, it'd be a rough adjustment, wouldn't it? And uh, it's a three-year program. And look what happens when they graduate. Verse 17, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Not just Bible study. God is with you in all your studies, in whatever you're studying. Science and history and language and whatever it may be. God is the God of truth. God is the God that provides blessings because He's equipping you for where He wants you. And maybe it's not a pulpit, maybe it's a political office. Every branch of literature and wisdom. And Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So he had that going for him as well, like Joseph did in in Egypt. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of them not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They graduated first, second, third, and fourth in their class. 
They outdid all of the peers. They did outdid all of the uh, contemporary Chaldeans, the native Chaldeans. That's like Nigel showing up and not speaking French, but winning the French Scrabble tournament. Okay, just because he was bored with the English Scrabble tournaments, he kept winning. So he decided to memorize the French dictionary. Started with the two-letter words, the three-letter words, the four-letter words, the five-letter words. Memorized all those, and then moved on to his bingos, his seven and eight-letter words. Can't speak, a, you know, he can't speak a, a sentence. Doesn't know the grammar or the syntax, but he knows the words. And uh, and he was last year's champion, and and now he's going to defend his title and try to win it for a second year in a row. And here they are, and God's giving them this kind of knowledge, this kind of wisdom. And they're outdoing the natives. How embarrassing is that when these non-Babylonian speakers show up and, and they, they're tops of their class in this Babylonian school. I don't think it took them long to learn the language. Okay, Ten times better, not just their peers, notice, than all the magicians and conjurers who are in all his realm. Now that's, that's a different statement right there too. Because that's not just comparing them with fellow students or grad students or whatever. That's comparing them with the professionals. The men that have been in that industry for some time. Okay? You know, a lot of times you get professionals in a, in a particular field and they've been doing it for some time and they know their stuff. They're so, because they wrote the book on this stuff. They've been doing it. They've been, they've been, uh, and they understand the difference between book knowledge and real knowledge, and they've been in this field, and they're the experts in, in whatever it is. And then you get this hotshot right out of college who thinks he knows it all, right? And he's got the, 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 the degree to, to prove it. And, and, and he shows up on day one. He tries to change everything. He tries to fix everything. He tells all the, the old men that they're doing it all wrong, and here's the way you've got to do it, and all this other stuff. And it doesn't go over very well. Okay, and it's usually wrong. Okay, because they gotta they gotta adjust to, to the realities of what they're dealing with. Okay, and uh, these old timers they're not as, as out of touch as, as the whippersnapper thinks that they are. Okay, but in this case it's true. Daniel and his three friends were better than anybody else in the entire nation. You might expect that because magicians and conjurers are just demon possessed. Uh, you know. Um, pagans anyway. <laughs> no wonder Daniel is better because Daniel's got the truth. His friends have the truth. You know, you start to wonder what kind of wisdom can the, can the demons provide? What kind of technology? What kind of understanding? What kind of mathematics? What kind of science? What kind of, what kind of um, inventions can the demons offer the, the realm of humanity? And uh, why do certain doctors, I mean, they're, why do they try certain things? Why? Who's, who's motivating that? You know, they, they're going to try a head transplant in the next 20 years. Really? You know, I mean, I get it. We, we want to, we're in God's image and we want to we master the creation and we have to have dominion. But, but some of these things I don't think are motivated by the dominion mandate. I don't think they're motivated by a, a reverence for God and a fear of the Lord and a hunger for scriptures and, and, and that. I think there's, there's demons at work, fallen angels saying, hey, you know what? You can, you can, you can do sex reassignment surgery and, and you can 
turn a boy into a girl. No, you can't. You cannot. You can superficially mangle an appearance and, and artificially attach things, and but you cannot change the chromosomes and the DNA and the and the uh, the mind, the mentality of a man or a woman. Anyway, so there it is, uh, verses seventeen through twenty, and uh, the success that's granted there. Not only is it the wisdom side, but it's also the foolish side. There's impact there. The fool, what does he provide? Public ruin. The fool only provides public ruin. And when the fool is put in political office, it's magnified. Okay? The fool only provides public ruin and requires the rod to mitigate the impact he would otherwise have. Requires the rod to mitigate the impact he would otherwise have. And I've got ten minutes to teach. <laughs> um, corporal punishment. And, and, you know, which is scandalous, obviously, in, in, in culture and society. Um, it's, it's, you know, even corporal punishment towards children within the boundaries of parents and marriage, that's not even allowed anymore, right? How about taking a stand for corporal punishment in society. This verse is talking about the rod, not spare the rod, spoil the child. There's plenty of verses for that. This is talking about the rod to grown men or should be grown, but not yet grown men. The, the won't grow up men that are hoodlums and thugs. The, the you know, when I was a child, I, I when I became a man, I, I put away the childish things. What happens when these boys never become men? And they don't put away the childish things. And they're never given the rod by their parents. They need the rod. Okay? And, and the men at the city gate are supposed to provide that. What happens when they don't? Okay? What happens when they don't? And uh, believe it or not... Um, it still exists in many parts of the world today. It no longer exists in America anywhere. Um, used to, up until last century, even uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, it started to disappear. All right? And then unfortunately, it, um, it, became, it became horrible after the Civil War. Because then it became a racial thing after the Civil War in terms of lynchings and whippings and, and things. Um, and that's, I, I think, that's what drove it out of existence after that. But um, it, was, it was commonly practiced in the colonies. It was commonly practiced in the Revolutionary Army. Uh, it was commonly practiced in the Navy. Disorder on board a ship was met by the lash. And, and, and the captain ran a tough ship in the, in the British Navy, in the American Navy, in every Navy up until modern times. Okay? Likewise in the Army. You could face a court-martial, you could face a firing squad, you could face a lashing. And originally it was 39, and at George Washington's request, the Continental uh, Congress approved an extension of that up to 100 lashings 
could be administered as a, as a corporal punishment discipline for desertion or for uh, homosexuality, for other uh, for other things to keep order within the within the army, the Continental Army. All right. And uh, it was it was short of the death penalty. It was not capital punishment. It was corporal punishment. All right. And uh, biblically speaking, we have plenty of uh, passages that address this. Um, do you remember in 1994 there was an American teenager named Michael Fay? In yeah, in 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 Singapore somewhere he he went to Singapore. And he was convicted of vandalism. And under Singapore law, he was sentenced, he had a fine, he had jail, and he had caning. They assigned caning. And I remember this, in 1994. And they they assigned him six strokes of the cane. And then all the protests and politicians and all that, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they dropped it to four strokes. and, And they administered it. Four strokes on his buttocks. All right, pants down and cane on the, and 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 then he came home, <laughs> and then he went on all the talk shows and all that whatever. Um, his life was a wreck afterwards too, by the way. I mean, just you talk about an undisciplined youth, never stepped into that manhood accountability before the Lord in in biblical wisdom, as far as I can tell, anyway, based on news reports. But in Singapore, they still have caning. In a lot of countries, it's not caning. Muslim law uh, still drives a lot in in that part of the world. But uh, caning, corporal discipline, as an adult, is there a place for that? And is it biblical? It is biblical. Okay, we see here, uh, it's biblical. So Proverbs ten, uh, a rod is for the back of him who has understanding. Guess what? Jesus Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron. In the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, he has a sword and he has a rod and he uses them both. Um, Rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. What is a rod for? Well, I don't want to use it. Well, then you're going to face the consequences of not using it because that's what it's there for. Proverbs 13, 24. Um, He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. That's in a family context, and parents ought to discipline their children. This comes up back again in Hebrews. Uh, Who is the father that does not discipline his son? The father that does not love his son. If you love your son, you don't withhold the rod. Withholding the rod means you hate him. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. He scourges every son whom he receives, we're told. Um, 19.29 Proverbs 19.29 Judgments are prepared for scoffers and blows for the back of fools. That's not a childhood context. That's not parental. That's societal. This is uh, corporal punishment in civil justice. 22.15 Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Again, family context. We're going back and forth here in these, in these verses. But when it's not done at the family level, what happens to society? That's why it's powerful. We've got to have strong families or society breaks down. How many of our inmates in the prisons never had a father in the home? 
It's, it's statistically undeniable. Uh, 23, 13, and 14. Do, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. I think the wisdom of God designed the gluteus maximus in, in a uh, beautiful, beautiful, nerve-ending kind of way <laughs> that instructs and teaches. And I mean, God is just so smart in the design of the uh, that portion of the anatomy. Chapter 26 and verse 3. A whip is for the horse, a bridle is for the donkey, and a rod is for the back of fools. That's in an adult context for civil judgment in, uh, in, in uh, the penal code. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. You will be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves that he not be wise in his own eyes. We've got the back-to-back contradictions there in verse 4 and verse 5. They don't contradict. It's knowing the difference between what time is it? Is it time for this or time for that? Or what's the application at the moment? But the verse right before that tells us about horses, donkeys, and fools. And there's, there's, uh, there's necessary implements for each one. 29.15 The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Yeah. Verse 17, correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. Oh, there's a lot in this. but It goes back and forth and it keeps going back and forth because personal wisdom becomes the public wisdom or not. Personal foolishness becomes the public foolishness, see. Vital that we recognize this. All right. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for opening our eyes to these things. And Father, if, uh, if our nation has a, has a chance, our, our answers, Father, are not economic or political. It's uh, the believers of this land, Father, need to get busy with the truth of your word. And I pray that pastors would quit goofing off. I pray that churches would quit the fun and games and the entertainment. I pray, Father, that your children in this land would be the salt and light that we are expected to be. And I thank you, Father, in your precious name we pray. Amen.